Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we start with a little announcement. We've been doing these longer form multi-part episodes for a while now, and it was a wild ride, very fun. But now we're going back to our weekly show. We might throw in a two-parter here and there, but for now on, we're going back to our original format of one new episode a week, baby. So today we're talking about the life and death of Reverend Willie Maxwell, rumored voodoo shaman and serial killer, and the subject of Pulitzer Prize winning author Harper Lee's last known writing project. So cool. A hard-hitting journalistic true crime piece on this murderous voodoo daddy. Harper Lee's book on Willie Maxwell was never finished, but years later, author Casey Sepp picked up where Harper Lee left off, writing a book with an excellent mix of true crime, American history, and Harper Lee biography. Casey Sepp is the author of this week's episode source material, Furious Hours. This is so cool. I remember hearing about this book for sure. I've been wanting to read this book for so long. And guys, it's so elegant, just beautifully written. I really couldn't recommend it enough. To complement this main feed episode, I put together a two-part bonus series for all those bibliophiles out there. Mm. We cover the rise and fall of both Harper Lee and Truman Capote kind of later in their life and their brushes with true crime along the way. So we're going to talk about Truman Capote's run-in with the Lonely Hearts Killers. We're going to talk about the Clutter Murders, which was actually a listener request a little while ago, but I can't remember who requested it we're covering the shooting of capote's close friend andy warhol just as in cold blood was blowing up the true crime genre and then finally we're gonna cover that time truman capote aired the dirty laundry of all his high society friends in esquire magazine and outed ann woodward for shooting her husband so (laughs) (laughs) it's very sassy all of that is up on our patreon and our spotify subscription channel right now man i am really into all this subject matter i thought you would be you're pushing every button i I picked this one for you for sure i am like a a street fighter (laughs) arcade game with two 13 year olds whooping each other's ass every button every joystick twerk tweak Twerk, tweak, pound, pound, pound. It's going off, baby. Okay. Okay, Muriel and I have a lot of love to firebomb you all with, so strap in as we rain it down upon thee. First of all, happy (laughs) birthday birthday to you. you. Happy freaking birthday to Heather M. from Las Vegas. Thank you for rocking with Muriel's Murders. Lots of love and hugs to you on your very special birthday. We hope you have a really, and you live in, you know, Las Vegas, man. Yeah. Go do something crazy. 
<laughs> I know everyone in Vegas is like, I'm just going to work. Like, it's not, what are you talking about? We're like, hangover. Just do it. Hangover. Okay. Uh, we also send a little peck on the cheek to Thad. What a fine boyfriend Thad is. Such a sweetheart. Okay. Speaking of Thad, thank you, sir, for signing up for our Patreon. Our other new Patreon mafiosi that need to be celebrated are Melissa W., Julie J., Helena H., Jake and Ash, plus Virginia S., Samantha M., and Hallie P. all increased their monthly pledges. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. We love you guys. And yes, moving forward, you can unlock new exclusive episodes by subscribing directly through Spotify. You go to Muriel's Murders on Spotify. Maybe you're listening to us right now that way. Anyways, you can see the episodes that are currently locked. You hit that little button for five bucks a month right on Spotify. You can support Muriel and I in our efforts to make this show and unlock two true crime episodes a month and one non-true crime episode a month. The back catalog of 50 plus exclusive episodes are not available on Spotify. For those, please check out Patreon. But moving forward, Spotify is a new great way to show Muriel's Murder some love and get new bonus episodes going forward as they come out. Thank you to all of you who have subscribed on Spotify already. They don't give us your names to shout out specifically, but thank you very much. We truly appreciate the love it's felt big time and a special shout out goes out to annie okay this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things just go listen to a different podcast we're gonna joke we're gonna curse maybe you think wow that sounds terrible that's okay you get a pass turn us off go outside and enjoy you know the um wolves howling at the moon or whatever's happening in your life right now outside of this podcast all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started so harper lee right she wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Nick. To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah. I, there was a split second there where I was like, oh no, is it A Few Good Men? Of Mice and Men. Something about an animal, and there's a number in there. Few, something like that. Oh, to, to Kill a Mockingbird okay. wasn't uh-huh. just a masterpiece. It was a huge commercial success, and she famously kind of as far as we know, never wrote another book again. Uh Nell Harper Lee grew up in this tiny spot called Monroeville in Alabama. For a brief time as a child, she was next door neighbors and best friends with Truman Streckfuss Persons, who would later become... Truman Capote. Right. It would go on to write... In Cold Blood? Yeah. Oh, I feel smart. This is my favorite episode we've ever done. I'm setting you up for good things. And good. I... Thank you. Uh, Lee was totally broke, living in New York City in 1956 when she showed some short stories to an agent of a friend in New York City. And the agent, this literary agent, told Lee, you know, we can't really sell short stories. So why don't you just go ahead and take a crack at 
writing a novel for the very first time. Doesn't uh, that feel like... <laughs> you should do a blog. And we're like, great, we should. And then we write the blog and we're like, hey, did you read the blog? And they're like, no. Definitely not. <laughs> no, why definitely don't you do not. a podcast? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I guess we'll do that. It just feels like it really is such a personal story in that way. I know. Um, so for Christmas uh-huh. that year, some friends of Harper Lee's who were not super rich but had had kind of a good year gifted her a check to live without a day job for a year and write her novel they must have really liked her short stories yeah and they were just like and they loved her and they just said do it and it was also like really cheap to live in new york at the time well there's always that (laughs) all these old school stories of people's you know roughing it it's like i talked to my dad his rent in the 80s in New York City was $50 a month. It's not, well, she didn't have um, like a stove. She couldn't boil water. Yeah. She didn't have any hot running water in her flat. Like, I mean, it was definitely not. She was living like her desk was a door that was on bricks. Yeah, I get it. Harper Lee wrote her first novel, Go Set a Watchman, in about two months. Mm-hmm. And it was rejected by all publishers it was submitted to. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Out of the gate, it's probably going to suck. Yeah, man. And she was about like, you know, maybe a few years younger than us. Uh She was like 34, 35. Right. Okay. So Watchmen made its rounds of rejection. Mm -hmm. Harper Lee wrote her second novel, The Long Goodbye, finishing it in about four months. So for anyone counting, that's two novels in six months. Yeah, that's good. So the same editor who worked with Harlem Renaissance icon Zora Neale Hurston on... Their Eyes Were Watching God. Yes. Oh, I love me right now. (laughs) It's a great book. Uh, She took interest in Lee's second novel, and they started developing it. By October 1956, four months later, Lee had the bones of... To Kill a Mockingbird, which was sort of a third novel based on The Long Goodbye, including themes from Watchmen. Cool. So Lee continued working on To Kill a Mockingbird, finishing it in 1959. And by then, she was just flat broke. She had spent all the advances on the novel. She had no money. So she took a research position with her bestie, Truman Capote, to assist in his work on this multi-part series he was doing for The New Yorker on these um, really brutal murders that were all over the papers, the clutter murders yes. um, that happened in Kansas. And that that multi-part series piece would eventually become the best-selling true crime book in cold blood which is celebrated as an early innovative leap in creative nonfiction writing across just beyond just true crime right Right. and i'm actually really glad you said that so we'll get into that in a minute so mockingbird was published in 1960 in 1961 it won the pulitzer prize for literature sold half a million copies in the first year and then was adapted into a film the mockingbird film won three Academy Awards in 1963. Today, it's one of the most best-selling books in history. It's sold over 40 million copies. Uh, uh, absolutely dominated, by the way, by yeah. the Harry Potter series. <laughs> okay. yeah, right. Four million copies. <laughs> Harry Potter's like, I, can, I, 
cast that many spells in the first three pages of it's a lot of copies it's a very incredibly successful book but i was like looking at wikipedia being like how successful was it and then it was just the top books are just every harry potter (laughs) uh i've also to be honest never read to kill a mockingbird really yeah Really? Why have you been acting like you understand my Boo Radley jokes for like twenty years? Because it's transcended, you know, everything. It's why it hasn't sold you twelve. Literally, I, I know who Boo Radley is. You've but- never read the book. <laughs> no, and also you call me Boo Radley. I'm gonna figure it out. You know what I mean? No, no you're, not, you're just making it up. I have to keep going. This is gonna be the longest episode we've ever done. <laughs> I if you believe, call me a I name, I'm going to un- know what you're talking about. No, you're gonna. I I literally can't believe you've never read that book. <laughs> all right, so all this great stuff happens with To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Well, turns out Harper Lee is a big old grumpus about publicity. She's insanely private, uh-huh. and as far as anyone knows, no one really knows. She's ha- she has a history of like apparently burning manuscripts sometimes or uh-huh. like destroying them. So nobody really knows She's what like she She's like an did. impossible genius. And no one's allowed to talk about the books when they talk to her. It's like a whole okay. thing, right? So as far as anyone knows, she didn't write another book for almost two decades or uh-huh. even attempt to. And then in 1976, Harper Lee was at some party for Southern expats living in New York City. And she met this Alabama lawyer named Big Tom Radney. The next year after that meeting, Big Tom wrote Harper Lee a letter. He said he had a story that she might be interested in from their home state about a client of his who had just been murdered. So Big Tom's former client, the Reverend Willie Maxwell, had been recently shot to death Mm. at a family funeral in front of 300 people. Really? Yeah. So Reverend Maxwell had had a string of suspicious deaths in his family, five deaths over seven years, including two of his wives. His 16-year-old stepdaughter had just been killed in another strange accident, and the town was reeling. Mm -hmm. And rumor had it that the Reverend was dabbling in voodoo. Oh. (laughs) Reverend Maxwell had just finished eulogizing his stepdaughter and returning to his seat when he was shot three times in the head by a fellow mourner. So Big Tom Radney, who had been Reverend Maxwell's longtime lawyer, was now representing the Reverend's murderer. And he thought Harper Lee might be interested in attending the trial. Harper Lee's like, don't say another word to me. I'm grabbing my typewriter. I still use that door as my desk. I'm coming right now. Literally, everyone, I'm not your friend anymore. Be quiet. I have work to do. That is kind of a pretty good summary of Furious Hours, to be honest. (laughs) What's Oh, Furious Hours, the name of the book. Uh, I freaking love Harper Lee. 
And you've never even read her book. Right? All right. So yeah. a lot of things clicked about this proposal. Mm-hmm. Harper Lee was actually the same age as this Reverend Maxwell. She grew up about 150 miles away in this little Alabama town just like him. Mm-hmm. Lee had always been fascinated with crime and journalism. Her dad was a lawyer who also ran a local newspaper. So mm-hmm. she had exposure to all of that stuff. Uh, Harper Lee had even gone to law school herself. She dropped out about half a semester before getting her degree, which horrified her parents. Half a semester? That doesn't count as like, going to law school. No, no, no. After getting their degree, like six weeks short of getting her law oh. degree, she dropped out. Oh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the other thing that Harper Lee was, was super annoyed about this trend of creative nonfiction, especially oh. in the genre of true crime that's sweeping the literary world. Because uh-huh. she had worked on the research for In Cold Blood with Truman Capote and could see where Capote had taken these artistic liberties with uh-huh. the facts of the clutter murders and thought it was really obnoxious. Totally. She, you know, yeah, she has yeah. this journalist background. Right. I don't have a journalist background and I still get a little like iffy when it comes to true crime podcasting. I mean, I mean, I'm iffy with myself. I think I'm obnoxious <laughs> half the time. You know, we're just, it's, I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, Harper Lee had her thing and that was yeah. it. She was, she was mad about that. Yeah. Anyway, she went back to Alabama to write a book for the first time since the 1950s, a hard-hitting journalistic true crime masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harper Lee did extensive research but never published anything about the Reverend Willie Maxwell. That's such a genius move. By 1987, she was totally done with the whole idea. Uh-huh. In a letter to a colleague, she wrote these things she believed to be true. So I'm quoting the letter. One that I probably know more about the Reverend Maxwell's activities than does any other individual. Two, that I have accumulated enough rumor, fantasy, dreams, conjecture, and outright lies for a volume the length of the Old Testament. (laughs) I'm basically biblical. Three, that I do not have enough hard facts about the actual crimes for a book-length account. Mm -hmm. Four, that the invitations I received for monetary contributions in exchange for information stretched from Cottage Grove to beyond Dadeville, some of them coming from incredible sources, and five, that there is no cassette tape long enough to measure human vanity. <laughs> I love this. She's just, she is grumpy. I know. <laughs> So Harper Lee continued along living her private life until she had a massive stroke in 2007 Mm. and went into a rest home. In 2015, a draft of Ghost Set a Watchman was published, a 58-year-old manuscript and the oldest book she had ever written. Yeah, her first one, right? Yeah. Harper Lee died February 19th, 2016, at the age of 89, never having published anything on Willie Maxwell. Her estate was sealed, so if there ever was a book written, no one will ever know. Mm -hmm. After Lee's death, New York Times staff writer Casey Sepp went to Alabama to write a piece on Ghosts at a Watchman and ended up hearing the story of Harper Lee's lost true crime opus. Casey Sepp took up the story and the resulting book was Furious Hours. And this is the story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Amazing. 
So as we said, Harper Lee grew up in Monroeville, Alabama. Our story takes place about 150 miles northeast in and around Alexander City, Alabama, and then the tiny town of Nixburg. Reverend Willie Maxwell was born in 1925 to a black sharecropping family in Kellington, Alabama, and raised in Cruzville. These are all just kind of in the same general vicinity. Mm-hmm. Cruzville was a town so tiny, it couldn't even really be counted as anything but unincorporated county land at the time. Willie was sixth of nine kids born during the Great Depression. Back then, most of the people living in this county, white and black, were all tenant farmers. So that means they lived and worked rented land on an estate. Mm -hmm. So they bought all the farming supplies in the spring with a sort of payday loan with crappy terms. And then after a season of hard labor and repaying the loans, if the crops were decent, tenant farmers made enough to survive and then just do it all again the next year. So that's a, it's a pretty hard life. Yeah. Kids start working as soon as they can start working. Right. And you're not really getting ahead in right. any way. And that's one of the reasons why a family like his might have nine kids. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Even though Cruzville was just a little blip of a town, it still had as many churches as stores because this was the deep south in the 1930s and mm-hmm. everything was segregated. So blacks and whites required separate churches, plus Methodists and Baptists refused to share a space. So they needed like four churches for nine people. <laughs> yeah, That's okay. like, what a- <laughs> okay. uh, this was still a horse and buggy town. So tree filled, quiet, very little crime. People mostly got in trouble for things like skipping church and swearing around women. Uh-huh. That gives you a sense of the tone of the county. Yeah. yeah. We know that Willie Maxwell was formally educated for seven years, and in 1943, he registered for the draft to fight in World War II. The U.S. Army was still segregated until 1948, by the way, which is ironic, giving... (laughs) What World War II was about? Right. Black American soldiers were out there fighting Nazis. Yeah, right. (laughs) But at any rate, it was still at the time when the military was segregated. But Willie didn't see combat. Instead, he was transferred to an engineer aviation battalion in Mississippi after basic training. And he just kind of lived at the camps in Keesler Field in these cramped, filthy quarters until he was discharged in 1945. But then after that, Willie re-enlisted and then went to California to join the 811th Engineer Aviation Battalion. And that's a small squad of black soldiers who constructed and maintained airfields internationally. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to include that because I think even though he had just seven years of formal education, Mm -hmm. he was pursuing these interesting kind of high-level things, right? He went re-enlisted and then yeah. was a part of this elite squad that dealt with aviation and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he does, in the beginning at least, seem to be an ambitious, yeah, sort right. of bright guy coming out of this tiny town. Totally. At the end of his service, after traveling around the world, Willie Maxwell came back home to settle in Kellington, Alabama. By this time, he was really quite a looker as an adult, a distinct, almost eccentric guy. He was 6'2", around 180 pounds, really handsome, thin, charming, graceful. Yeah, he's full just traveled the whole globe. He's like an army man. He's like, they're loving him. Well, he'd also developed this very 
oddly formal, old-fashioned way of speaking. Uh-huh. He was really into etiquette and stuff like that. Okay, cool. So he was sort of like his own version of a hipster for back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like a beatnik or uh-huh. something. Willie took one of the only jobs available to him at the time, a position in a huge textile mill in Alexander City. And there he met soft-spoken, kind-hearted Mary Lou Edwards, a girl from another tiny Alabama town, and the two were married in 1949. So Willie wasn't really a company man type. He was more of a kamikaze entrepreneur, right? (laughs) Someone who had a lot going on and then like opted out of anything that didn't interest him. Uh So he worked as a sharecropper for a minute. He dropped that got fired from the mill for just not showing up for his shifts and then settled into a more like a rhythm of a more lucrative side gig work basically. Uh Okay. Sounds a little bit like Harper Lee. (laughs) So Willie took up powdering, which was essentially blasting holes in rock quarries with dynamite. Ooh, that sounds fun. He also ran his own crew doing pulp wooding. So this is like my version of a very short version, but basically he would hire a team to go to different landowners parcels and then cut out the less valuable trees to bring to processing plants that made wood pulp for paper goods. And he was just really, really good at that. One example is that usually pulp wooding teams had an arborist with them Mm -hmm. to assist with that kind of stuff. But Willie did all of that skilled work his himself right you know. he was his own arborist he was his own expert and he ran his own crew which yeah. also you know he decided to skip out the middleman and do that himself cool and the whole time he was building a reputation for himself just as a public figure because despite these messy hard labor jobs willie was always immaculately dressed and groomed with mm-hmm. like shine shoes the repeat suits even when he was working as yeah cutting down trees like and blasting blasting rocks to smithereens he's and showing up looking absolutely amazing that's awesome and this helped him greatly with his third side gig baptist preacher mm. willie was ordained as a minister in 1962 he Definitely went back to school. He did a lot of studying and he started going by Reverend Maxwell. He was known for his deep, effective knowledge of scripture, his fancy clothes and old timey way of speaking. Baptists <laughs> dominate the religious scene in Alabama. And a sure. lot of that popularity was built on the backs of preachers with day jobs like Willie Maxwell, mm. um, men who didn't make enough money to survive with preaching, but did it anyway. And Willie also had another reason to have a bunch of day jobs. Those three-piece suits were expensive. (laughs) In fact, as an adult, Willie Maxwell was usually thousands of dollars in debt at any given time. His wife, Mary Lou, had to take several jobs out as well just to keep their heads above water cash poor outfit rich yeah so by 1970 the couple was about 20 years into their marriage they had no children and by most accounts the marriage was a bust uh we don't have a lot of specifics no account of any physical abuse but mary lou seemed really depressed she was working all the time stressed about money Mm -hmm. and gaining weight and willie had his women so this is some 
open secret when it comes to the pre- traveling preacher scene, right? Yeah, yeah. First, they, they get it. <laughs> the position afforded <laughs> Willie respect and prestige like a little rock star. Uh-huh. And it gave him access to lots of women across the state, women who weren't known in his own community, you right. know, where he wasn't known. And like the Carmela Soprano thing, if you remember uh-huh. from The Sopranos, a preacher like Willie was pretty much the only socially acceptable man allowed to be alone with women mm-hmm. inside their homes. Right. And then the phone calls that Mary Lou fielded from women at all times, night and day, could be explained away as a reach out for counseling from their favorite <laughs> dapper preacher. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, honey. They've got a line on some brand new mustache wax. You know, they're they they're just thanking me for cleansing them of their sins, and uh, I got a new then they got a new fedora for me. What can I say? <laughs> so this was all just sad background noise, rumor, or suspicion until January 1970, when Willie went to court to acknowledge a six-week-old baby girl mm. he had conceived outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. Mary Lou was beat down at this point and marriage was absolutely a forever thing for her so she basically let it slide willie gave the baby the maxwell name and they just moved on uh-huh she raised it as her own like the baby no the baby with- stayed with its okay. mother but uh-huh. it's a publicly acknowledged thing he went to court and gave the baby his last name gotcha In the summer of 1970, Mary Lou was living with Willie in Nixburg, Alabama, working two jobs. Willie had just been fired from the mill again, another in a string of firings. But this night on August 3rd, he was working the job he always managed to keep. The Reverend Willie Maxwell was out preaching at a tent revival. For those unfamiliar, these are like hours long, high energy sermons held in giant tents, sometimes like circus tents, mm-hmm. meant to spread the word of Jesus with a little zazz. Yeah. And this is where a lot of like Oral Roberts came from this tradition. Sure. And this is like the televangelists, you know, sort yeah. of like the groundwork, groundwork that led that. to all that. Yeah. I would love to go to one of those, but not for hours. You know, They're I'd long. go for like 30 minutes, you know? Well, and I think when he books one of these, he's like one of five preachers right. or something like that. So it's like a big, long, like. Yeah, I would be one of those people to just show up for the headliner. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, there's nothing else to do. They're in tiny towns. And a lot of times it's just like a community gathering. It's got to be fun as hell. Minus the whole like if I don't subscribe to certain things, I might burn for all eternity sort of part of it, which wouldn't be fun to me personally. But just going and like well, you get having little- great energy with a bunch of people and the person up there is cool. You're like, this is great. It's like going to a concert. Yeah. And maybe it'll scare you a little bit, right? With yeah, the devil. And, and that's like, you know. You know, we go to see horror films. I mean, you know? we're literally doing a true crime podcast. <laughs> yeah. So Mary Lou had been invited to join, but probably not really. Who knows if Willie actually wanted her there or not. Mm-hmm. And generally the role of preacher's wife was a big old stress bomb for Mary Lou anyway. There's mm. just a lot of stuff that comes along with that expectation. So she preferred to stay home. That summer night, Mary Lou visited some family and friends before settling down for a long night of waiting for Willie alone. Oh no. Because he had instructed her to leave the phone line open so he could call on his way home. So Ugh. that meant she couldn't do any chatting. She was just sitting there. Why has it gotta be Mary Lou, Muriel? Why why? <laughs> you and Harper Lee, you know, it's unbelievable. You guys are the worst. In the beginning, 
there were two versions of what happened that night. Willie's version and Dorcas Anderson's version. Dorcas Anderson? Mm-hmm. Okay, enter the scene. Willie told police that after the revival, he drove to a store, bought a Coke, called his wife, but she didn't answer. And then when he came home around 11 p.m., Mary Lou wasn't home. Uh, he figured she was out with family or friends and just went to bed. Around 2 a.m., Willie said he woke up. Mary Lou was still gone. So he started calling friends, neighbors, and family. No one had heard from her, so he broke down and called the police. Dorcas Anderson had a completely different story. So Dorcas Anderson was the Maxwell's younger next-door neighbor. She had a rough go of it. Her husband had developed ALS and was Mm. really rapidly deteriorating. And so she was nursing him and then raising their two tiny little kids. That meant that she was home all the time and she had seen what had gone down at her neighbor's house that night. Dorcas told police the following, that she had spent some time chatting with Mary Lou in the early evening, and Mary Lou was kind of complaining about how the Reverend had forbidden her from using the phone, and she was feeling kind of lonely. Then Dorcas said later that night, Mary Lou came by the house completely frantic. She said she got a call from Willie. He had been in a terrible car accident and she was going to go drive to meet him and see if she could help or pick him up. Dorcas said she never saw Willie come home at all, not at 11 p.m. or otherwise. And then at 2 a.m. she was awoken with this panic call from Willie Maxwell asking about Mary Lou. And as Dorcas is on the phone with him, she like goes over and peeks out her window and looks at his car because she can see it from her house. Not having been in an accident. No scratch on it. No accident. So Dorcas wasn't sure what was up. But in that moment, she decided to tell Willie she hadn't seen Mary Lou since the early evening. Totally left out the part about mm-hmm. the accident. Okay, Dorcas, she's already on it. She's already kind of like, this is weird, yeah. right? But she did tell police that detail. Mm-hmm. So when confronted, Willie Maxwell told investigators, oh, this is all some misunderstanding. Either Dorcas was mistaken or Mary Lou had fed some lies to like cover up where she was going, right? Mm-hmm. At this point, he told police, look, I think we're wasting time. Go look for Mary Lou on the route to her sister's house on Highway 22. Highway 22 is this little winding rural highway that was dark and foggy. It like ran over like around a creek. Yeah, the perfect murder path. Right. And maybe Mary Lou had gotten into a car accident. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So sure enough. Investigators found Mary Lou's car parked on the grassy shoulder of Highway 22, engine running, headlights on. Inside was Mary Lou's body, and she had been brutally beaten. Mm. Her dress was soaked in blood. Part of her ear was missing. And as they looked around, they found the outside of the car was covered in blood as well. Oh, my God. So, like, the hood, the windshield, the passenger door, and tracking you know like look fanning out around the area they found in a nearby church parking lot a bunch of blood spatter and when it was tested it matched mary lou's blood type so 
they figured that's where the attack began and then it ended on the side of the road. R.I.P. Mary Lou, that's horrible. So coroners concluded she had been beaten to death after a failed strangling attempt, probably in the driveway of that church, although no one ever found the rope. She had the marks. Mm -hmm. The reverend was the first obviously and most glaring suspect his clashing story with dorcas he had a recently used burn pit with scraps of clothing inside that seemed suspicious he had all this outstanding debt he had these hidden in plain sight lovers like the one he had the love child with yeah. or the one they found out he had just purchased a brand new car for and oh, was whoa. behind on payments wow yeah and meanwhile while investigators are gathering all this evidence this grieving husband buried Mary Lou, claimed her last check from the textile mill, and then quietly started collecting on the multiple life insurance policies he had taken out on her life. Then he got himself a killer attorney. Big Tom Radney had been run out of politics. His story is really interesting. Read Furious Hours for the full picture. Seriously, it's a super interesting story. The one sentence version is that he was a liberal politician in a conservative area of the South during the civil rights movement and got so many death threats that he quit politics and became a defense attorney, particularly a very aggressive trial lawyer. Okay. That also seems like he might anger some people who would make such threats. That's well, just, it's like, I don't want this anymore. I'm going to go do the other thing that everyone hates. Well, we'll talk about that, okay? okay? So by the time he started representing Willie Maxwell, Big Tom was a beloved local character in Alexander City, Alabama, because he would always work with any client or at least consult with them regardless if they had any money. And mm -hmm. kind of like, he felt like everybody deserved an attorney regardless okay. of anything. Right? Okay, cool. So he always took calls personally if somebody called into the office. Um, and if he was in the office, he was always available to anyone who came in. He worked on a sliding scale and also on contingency. So sometimes he'd just work for a pie or a chicken or a bushel of pecans. People tolerated his politics more now that he was giving out affordable legal assistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he was kind of like a little kingpin in town. Okay. In, in fact, right. uh, Big Tom, <laughs> I just thought this was funny. Big Tom took so many meetings in local restaurants with other local bigwigs yeah. that they started getting banned <laughs> from each restaurant for staying too long, not ordering enough and being too loud. <laughs> <laughs> Just having heated discussions on, <laughs> on like all the politics. And so then they pooled all uh -huh. their money together and then bought a building and made their own little private restaurant called the Lunch Bunch. That's great. <laughs> what ethnicity is he? He's white. Okay. Um so And Mary Lou was was sadly R.I.P. unfortunately, uh murdered in this is like nineteen seventy, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, after taking on Willie Maxwell as a client, Big Tom built a beautiful law office that some people in town called the Maxwell House, although Big Tom called it the zoo. And over the years, he took a lot of flack for taking on Willie as a client, uh -huh. but his success in defending Willie did bolster his reputation as an extremely talented and relentless lawyer, the best around, mm -hmm. and Willie needed all the help he could get. First, 
Willie Maxwell was arrested for murder, but he was soon released due to lack of evidence. Then a grand jury indicted him on first degree murder, but the charges were again dismissed. The Alabama Bureau of Investigation, so like the larger state bureau, Mm -hmm. decided to open their own investigation that again led to charges being filed, but a failure to return an indictment. Here's the thing. If Willie was convicted of his wife's murder, he couldn't cash in on his insurance policies. So while all these investigations were going on, Big Tom was hard at work fighting insurance companies in court. The insurance companies did not want to pay out on Mary Lou's life insurance policies until Willie was cleared as a suspect in her murder. Mm -hmm. So Big Tom ended up filing civil suits against the companies at a breakneck pace, trying to get the money before the next grand jury indictment. So this whole like, hey, I'm a lawyer for the people and I do things on sliding scales. He's like, okay, your sliding scale is I need to prove that you're innocent plus collect on all the life insurance of your murdered wife so I can get paid. Well, what he's saying is technically if the charges don't stick. Yeah. Right. Then he's not guilty and so he deserves those insurance policies i mean it's like he's not trying to do anything illegal i guess my question is is what is big tom charging willie enough to build a giant law office (laughs) (laughs) okay but his philosophy is everyone deserves an attorney and technically willie is not he's not been proven guilty in the court of law yeah he counts as an everybody for sure yeah On August 6th, 1971, so the next summer, the third and final indictment was handed down in the case of Mary Lou Maxwell's murder. This time, Willie was indicted along with one of his girlfriends. Ophelia Burns was accused of helping Willie ambush Mary Lou and then later assisting with parking her car on the side of Highway 22. Mm -hmm. So the charges against Ophelia Burns didn't stick. They were dismissed. But Willie Maxwell's first-degree murder trial started and ended on the same day in August 1971. The state's star witness was Willie's neighbor, Dorcas Anderson. She took the stand and told a completely different story. Okay. One that fully jived with Willie's version of events, didn't remember what she had told police, Uh whatever, whatever. Okay. Dorcas Anderson's testimony was the only thing holding the case together. There wasn't any physical evidence linking Willie Maxwell to the case. And that same day, the Reverend Willie Maxwell walked out of court a free man. After Willie Maxwell was acquitted, Big Tom went on to force the remaining insurance companies to pay out Willie's policies, winning case after case, and raking in the cash, creating a household name for himself and Willie in Tallapoosa County. Then, two months after his murder trial, the Reverend took a new wife, the freshly widowed Dorcas Anderson. Really? The freshly? (laughs) Oh, right, because of ALS, RIP. Yeah, that's Uh. a lot. Okay. (laughs) I guess, hey, you know, the only way to turn an enemy into a friend is through love. You know what I mean? He's like, she's going to stitch on me. Have I got some Baptist minister charm for her? Yeah, we're talking. Hello, Dorcas. (laughs) Hello, Dorcas. 
So, ah, uh, Dorcas and Willie, a brief timeline. Okay. Dorcas is born in the same country where Willie was born, just as Willie Maxwell is wrapping up his time in the army. You said country, but you meant county, right? Yep. Okay. As a youngster, Dorcas hears tales of the handsome, well-dressed preacher from Nixburg. Dorcas gets married, coincidentally mm -hmm. moves next door to Willie Maxwell and his wife in Nixburg, has two kids, and her husband, Abram, develops ALS. In August 1970, Willie's wife is found brutally murdered, and Dorcas informs police that Willie is acting super shady. Reverend Willie keeps slipping out of indictments while continuing to visit his young, struggling neighbor and her wheelchair-bound husband. February 1971, Dorcas Anderson's husband, Abram, is forced to move into a VA home for more extensive care and then dies there three months later. R.I.P. Three months after that, at Willie Maxwell's first-degree murder trial, star witness Dorcas Anderson suddenly forgets her prior statements to police, incriminating Willie, and torpedoes the entire case against him. Willie is acquitted that same day. Two months later, Willie marries Dorcas. So the day after he married Dorcas, Willie Maxwell took out four life insurance policies on her oh, for $5,000. And then by Christmas, another $20,000 policy. Willie moved into the Anderson house, adopted Dorcas's kids, and then convinced Dorcas to form a survivorship estate. So that meant if either of them died, all assets would go to the spouse. They wouldn't go to any existing children. <laughs> really? Yeah. And he did all that by like Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Then six months after their marriage and eight months after Mary Lou Maxwell's murder trial, Dorcas gave birth to Willie's son. So you can do the math on that one. I don't know, Muriel. I'm a man who hasn't read To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm fairly uneducated. I'm not sure I can swing the math on. On this whole pregnancy thing. Okay. Weeks, months. I forget, you know? <laughs> I also didn't read that book. Uh, charming. <laughs> After Mary Lou's murder, repeat indictments, and the string of public court cases showing the absurd amount of policies Willie had taken out on his murdered wife, the reverend's reputation was totally shot. He was dismissed from the four churches where he'd been preaching and only got gigs in far-flung places outside of the county. Mm -hmm. The voodoo rumors started shortly after Dorcas Anderson married her 46-year-old next-door neighbor who was 18 years her senior and fresh off of beating his murder charges in you know the death of his first wife. Yes. Just months after her own husband passed away. So the rumors were sort of split between Willie poisoned Abram Anderson with antifreeze to steal his wife or Willie killed Abram with voodoo somehow and then put a love spell on Dorcas. Mm -hmm. So that was really what was circulating at the time. And well, the rumors didn't fade with time because, hold on to your butts, Reverend Willie Maxwell's brother was found mysteriously dead on the side of Highway 22 just a few months later. Like the same Highway 22, like in the same place. 
Yes. Okay. Well, what happened there? R.I.P. Who's he? Willie Maxwell's brother. Yeah, we haven't heard anything about him. And, uh, now, and now he's dead all of a sudden? About a week after William Dorcas formed their survivorship estate, the reverend's alcoholic brother was arrested for drunk driving. So Willie posted a $300 bond to get his 52-year-old brother, John Columbus Maxwell, out of jail. And the day before John Columbus's court date in February 1972, an anonymous person called into police. So the caller claimed to have found John Columbus Maxwell dead near Nixburg on the side of the Highway 22 and that he had clearly been killed in some hit and run accident. Mm -hmm. And then the caller hung up. Nobody knows what happened to them. Did he have some life insurance policies out on him? Police arrived to the same highway running through the same town where Mary Lou Maxwell was found dead in 1970. They found John Columbus Maxwell's body. He had obviously been dead for hours before the call came in. The body was reeking of booze and completely uninjured. So the coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, but considering John was the brother of the voodoo daddy himself. Yeah. He opted to send a blood sample off for a toxicology yeah, screen. Yeah, see if there's some snake venom or something in him. So the tox screen came back showing at the time of his death, John Columbus had a blood alcohol level of 0.41. So mm. this is in the coma range of alcohol poisoning. Uh-huh. It's very high. John Columbus had... No immediate family to notify, no wife or kids. But he did have a brother who was busy cashing in insurance policies like the Hamburglar. John's official cause of death was alcohol-induced heart attack, so no charges were ever filed in relation to his death. Mm -hmm. And then Willie again quietly collected the money. At this point... I'm shaking my head so hard I'm wondering if... The microphone is picking up the headphones rattling. I don't know. At this point between the deaths of Mary Lou Maxwell and John Columbus Maxwell, Reverend Willie Maxwell had collected about $100,000 in insurance policies. So that would be almost $800,000 in today's money. He owned 50 million suits. Insurance companies were frustrated. Insurance lawyers were grabbing their pitchforks, digging into their own independent investigations. Uh And one by one, insurance agencies started banning Willie from holding insurance policies. The Central Security Life Insurance Company went as far as to pay Willie almost three grand just in order to cancel the 10 policies he held just with that company. Oh my God. On Uh, who? All types of people? All types of people. Everyone in his family? Other companies not only banned Willie, but also banned his other family members from holding or being the subject of any more insurance policies. Hmm. So let's take a moment to talk about life insurance. <laughs> like the Hambler girl. What do you think? <laughs> Whatever. That was a funny reference to think about. <laughs> As I wrote it, I was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I was like, I think I use the Hamburglar a lot in my episodes uh, i don't know do you i do i, I feel like, like the third time that might just oh okay <laughs> so i think that might just be someone who lives rent free in your mind yeah you know it is um so i'm gonna do a really like nutshell version of this there's a lot of really interesting information about you know the history of life insurance in the u.s in furious hours it's uh-huh. really you know pretty crazy but anyway 
the short version is apparently in the 1970s, life insurance was still kind of a Wild West thing in the U.S., meaning there were still lots of cheap policies that didn't require a physical to qualify or an autopsy to collect. So that meant at the time, and for years before that, obviously, that people were out there either killing the policyholders or pretending to kill the policyholders. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Yeah, we've done several episodes where that's what's going on. Yeah, at least a lot more often than it happens today. Yeah. Uh, Plus, it was really easy to take out policies on people without them knowing at all. Mm. And by 1970, Willie Maxwell was going off. He had policies out on his mother, wife, all his brothers, his aunts, his nieces and nephews, even the little baby girl he had legally claimed at the beginning of 1970, all listing himself as the sole beneficiary. And most of these policies cost him less than a dollar. Wow. Yeah. So like, why wouldn't you yeah. get them if you, you know, are murdering <laughs> sort of crazed person yeah or even if you're just like well some they're gonna die like the chances are one of my family members is gonna die well that's one thing i guess that used to happen is just like speculative people would take out policies on people they just assume were gonna die like (laughs) that guy crosses the street without looking both ways like what's his name and then (laughs) that guy's an idiot (laughs) yeah he's always climbing ladders you know he's always up on a ladder So September 20th, 1972, around 10 p.m., some men were driving down Highway 9 in Nixburg, right near the Highway 22 junction, and came across a car idling on the side of the road in the foggy night. Inside, they found the body of Dorcas Anderson Maxwell curled up on the floorboards under the driver's seat. So the car looked as, as if it had been in a minor accident. The front bumper was dented and the windshield was cracked, but not in any major way. Her body didn't show any visible injuries, but oddly, her body was already going through rigor mortis, so had been there for a while. Mm. R.I.P. So as soon as the body was identified as Dorcas Anderson, every law enforcement agency in the area was on high alert. You know, they had Willie's second wife found dead in the same time of year in the same area under the same circumstances as his first wife, Mary Lou. So the body was immediately sent for autopsy. And before dawn, Willie Maxwell was on the phone with his lawyer, Big Tom Radney. So Willie's story was Dorcas had made the family dinner, put the three kids to bed, and then left to visit her mother in nearby Alexander City, who had gone fishing earlier and said she had some fish for them, so she was going to go pick some up. And Willie said that Dorcas left around 9 p.m., and when she didn't come back, Willie called his mother-in-law, right? And Mm -hmm. she told him, she hadn't seen or heard from Dorcas all day. There was no plan to pick up fish. So Willie said after that, he bundled up the sleeping kids, got everybody into the car, and then instead of checking the route from his house to Alexander City, where Dorcas presumably could have wrecked, Willie told police he drove the opposite direction, about 11 miles away, to check if Dorcas had gone to visit some friends of theirs who didn't have a telephone. Then he said he chilled there for a while while shooting the breeze before going back home and just putting the kids back to bed and 
deciding to wait for Dorcas. Dorcas Anderson Maxwell's autopsy revealed nothing. She had leaves stuck in her sandals and some minor scratches and cuts, but no major injuries. Her blood test was negative for poisons, alcohol, or drugs. She had a fractured hyoid bone, and that's like a fragile bone in the neck that Mm -hmm. when it's broken, it sometimes indicates strangulation, but it can be broken in other ways, and there was nothing else that indicated strangulation, like no rope marks or anything like that. Yeah. So with nothing else to point to, Dorcas was declared to have died of natural causes, probably acute respiratory distress, so like pneumonia or asthma, even though she had none of those conditions. Wow, man. And Willie's song and dance of collecting thousands of dollars from insurance policies started up yet again. Three policies had been taken out on Dorcas Anderson's life originally by Dorcas and her first husband, Abram. So those were paid out without question straight into the hands of Reverend Willie because of their survivorship estate arrangement. So they just went straight to Willie, bypassed the kids. Willie was also the beneficiary of their mortgage insurance that they had previously purchased. And that ended up paying the $13,000 balance on Dorcas and Abrams' house that Willie now owned outright. Willie himself had taken at least 17 known policies out on Dorcas. So nobody knows about the policies that didn't go to court, but those are just the ones that were litigated. Oh my God. So he got everything, went straight to him. By this time, every major insurance company was taking steps to fight paying out the Dorcas policies. Big Tom Radney was launching a slate of civil suits against the insurance companies and was literally running out of jury pools in the county (laughs) that hadn't heard about the murder of Willie's last wife or been involved in the civil lawsuit trials against insurance companies that Big Tom had argued back in 1970, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's the same small town just recycling over and over again. Yeah, he's literally running out of people he could even bring to the jury. (sighs) There was no charge of murder again, so the insurance companies case all really came down to the cause of death. It was a car accident, undisclosed pre-existing condition, or some combination of both. And they'd only pay out if it was in the event of like an accident, Mm -hmm. right? So the question of whether or not Dorcas had obviously been murdered by Voodoo Daddy, along with Mary Lou, John Columbus, and possibly even Abram Anderson, couldn't legally be brought up at any of these trials at all because none of them, you know, he wasn't guilty of any of that. None of them were declared murders. Voodoo daddy. (laughs) He's walking around in a zoot suit. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking the whole time. Okay. In the end, out of $131,000 worth of insurance taken out on Dorcas alone, Willie received about $80,000. So he was able to get most of that money or at least half of it. By now, as you can imagine, everyone in Willie Maxwell's entire home county was just straight up terrified of him. Mm -hmm. And it became this thing like no one knew who would be next. 
He could have insurance policies on anyone in Nixburg. And in that way, it was like magic, like an invisible yeah, yeah. hand of death, you know? Right, right, right. Plus, he can, you'll fall in love with him. Yeah. Willie's explanation for the deaths boiled down to one thing. He, a man of God, was being targeted and framed by either a human or an evil spirit. Gotcha. But he did not retreat. He kept wearing his fancy clothes and even though he was banned from preaching, he still went to church in Nixburg and just acted like everything is fine. Like, hello, good evening. How are you? Uh, and, and doing his old fashioned nice guy, you know, talking. And everyone was like, no, we know what's up. It's voodoo. So broadly speaking, really broadly speaking, yeah, yeah, yeah. voodoo is like a religion, philosophy, medicinal practice that originated in West Africa and then spread initially to the Caribbean and the southern U.S. through the slave trade. Right. Yeah. So from New Orleans, voodoo practices made their way through the south to Alabama, where they still have really strong roots, even among the Baptists. Uh-huh. Right. The Baptists are like dominate religion there but yeah it's a more culturally a part of of life right? cool yeah at the time the reverend william maxwell was on the scene voodoo traditions and superstition still held a lot of weight in the community and so that's all to say that everyone in nixburg had a solid frame of reference for the voodoo accusations against willie they didn't like come out of left field or it wasn't just a crazy label like people kind of knew what they were accusing him of mm-hmm. and the voodoo thing had legs and people genuinely thought willie was a straight up voodoo priest who had trained in new orleans mm-hmm. and with like these specific sisters and had done this whole training program so that was like the idea right yeah i actually was gonna ask that is is voodoo just like a catch-all sort of like um you know stereotypical simplistic thing that that uh, I don't know, people would just throw on anything sort of scary or did, or was it like a really specific known label? And it sounds like it was the very latter. specific yeah. known label. There's a close, like if you th- talk about new Orleans, it's like usually people's frame of reference for mm-hmm. like voodoo and like that, you know, practicing like culturally those things. Yeah. The proximity to Alabama is pretty close. Yeah. So a lot of that is just deeply rooted you know, I want to know about the sisters he supposedly trained with. Yeah. What are they? They're the seven sisters or the six sisters. They're like, that's a lot of sisters. They're very ethereal. They're said to be ageless and they uh-huh. exist in new Orleans. And then they, they're, they're magical. And the, uh, that's, that rocks. Really? A lot of people have said, Oh, I'm a sister. I've trained with them, but okay. they, they have this like kind of, it's a folklore thing, I think. Sure. But yeah, this isn't like a thin sort of like, yeah, I get it. Voodoo, generally, yeah. this is a uh, a place where people still practice, you know, practice right. things that are more like just called superstitions or traditions, but yeah. they're rooted in, in voodoo culture. Gotcha. Anyway, these are some of the rumors that were circulating about the reverend at the time. I want them. That he hung white chickens upside down in his pecan trees to ward off bad spirits. Okay. Uh, he painted his door with blood to keep the cops away. Then he always carried envelopes of poison powders on him, that he drank people's blood like mm-hmm. NyQuil when he was sick, that he had a room in his house dedicated to voodoo, like completely dedicated with jars and all that kind of stuff, that if you drove by his house at night, 
the lights in your car would go out, your headlights would go out. Also, he could run from Birmingham to Atlanta, Georgia in 20 minutes. What? That that's was- that's a that's a that's a everything else I'm like, okay, I could see that going either way. But I feel like he can do that one. I don't know why it's like obviously the fakest one, but I'm like, damn, that is voodoo. And scary. Uh, also, he could turn into a black cat whenever he wanted. Okay. And if you looked him in the eyes, you would be cursed for eternity. And people really took, they were like not trying to look in his eyes. But just walked around with like sunglasses with fake eyes painted on the outside that seemed like they're looking at him. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that would be a good tactic. But regardless of this horrifying reputation, two years later, the Reverend Willie Maxwell managed to marry once again. Well, of course he did. This third wife yeah. was uh-huh. Ophelia Burns. That was the woman who had been indicted along with Willie mm. in the murder of his first wife gotcha. back in 1971. So she's watched R.A.P. Mary Lou, maybe was involved, then R.A.P. Dorcas, and now she's like, hey, man, third time's a charm. Here right. we go. Plus the brother's in there somewhere, right? Right, right, right. Uh, between them, they had a big old family. Willie had the little girl he fathered while cheating on his first wife, Mary Lou, then the son he had with Dorcas, plus her two sons from Abram. And then Ophelia had a whole group of adult kids from her first marriage, the one that ended in divorce when her affair with the Reverend became public back in mm-hmm. 1971. And also a little girl, an informally adopted daughter of a relative named Shirley Ann that Ophelia was raising. So after the death of his second wife, Willie had a shortage of work as a preacher, so he went back to work as a pulp wooder. Uh, <laughs> and by this time, his reputation was like really bad in the community, obviously. Like nobody wanted to work with him. Yeah. But most of the, the landowners in the area were mostly white, or I think all white. So what he would do is work for this guy, this white guy who would introduce him to other people who weren't in the black community. Uh, uh-huh. who own parcels of land. Uh-huh. And then he'd just get ahead of the rumors uh-huh. by saying, hey, this guy is accused of murdering all these people and being accused of a voodoo priest. Like, it's kind uh-huh. of kitschy. Uh-huh. And he was so put together and snazzy and well-spoken like spoken that it totally worked. People thought it was this really fun story. So they would be like, you have no idea who my pulp water is. Yeah, right. He's this guy who's like supposedly a voodoo priest oh or whatever. God. So he was able to get work still. Right, right. Um, but he had a hard time holding his pulp wooding crew together because that was all people from his community, from the black community. And so they would just constantly quit because they'd work for him for a little bit and be like, nah, he's going to kill he's, me. He's coming for me. I know. <laughs> hey, yeah. Why don't you, you want to saw this one down? Why don't you take, why don't you do the hacking? Actually you know? though, like really, yeah. and they would be like, nobody knows who he has a policy out on. Right. right. And they're out in the middle of the woods with this guy and things to, tear down trees and then you're gonna but take him to a place where you can shred a tree into a billion little bits and the whole time he's just standing in the shadows in a three-piece suit just staring at yeah like trying to make eye contact (laughs) freaking grabbing white chickens saving them for later these guys were cycling through constantly and one of the guys who quit was even his own nephew james hicks And on Valentine's Day, 1976, Uh James Hicks went missing. Two days later, (sighs) he was found dead in his car on Highway 9, just 10 miles away from where Willie had recently settled down with his third wife, Ophelia. 
Again, the 1966 Pontiac Firebird looked as if it had been parked on the shoulder. No indications of an accident or crash. James Hicks' body showed no signs of injury. There were no drugs in his system, just a small trace amount of alcohol. Agents for the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation were just obviously just trying to figure out how to crack this case. Yeah, so they, they're like, it's definitely voodoo, so let's just figure out how to prove that it's voodoo <laughs> at this point. So they start digging around, and they found the following. A forged life insurance policy on James Hicks in his uncle Willie's handwriting. Mm-hmm. Witnesses stating that Willie's third wife, Ophelia, had been calling around trying to get James Hicks' social security number. And most importantly, two completely unrelated men who said Willie approached them about helping him murder his nephew for thousands of dollars. Okay. So apparently this is what Willie would do is he was cruising up to dudes in his brown Lincoln Continental. Sweet. Leaning out the window and then asking them, quote, how dirty they were. <laughs> Which I just love. Because it's like sometimes slang changes so much. Yeah, right. <laughs> over the years, it's such a funny thing. So you'd roll up to them and be like, hey, how dirty are you? And, <laughs> and you know, people knew what that meant. I wouldn't, but, you know. <laughs> I would think you're talking about something really different there, Reverend. <laughs> anyway, the the two men who were apparently dirty enough to move on to the next stage of the murder for hire scheme, but not dirty enough to go through with it, both had similar stories. Okay. That Willie planned to give his nephew a sedative and just a little bit of alcohol and then smother him to death at a church parking lot. Mm. And he just needed help with sort of tricking him and then making some phone calls and moving some cars around. After refusing to carry out the plan, they kind of both bailed in the late stages. Both men said they were offered hush money and then later threatened by Willie. Mm -hmm. So they had really similar stories. The SBI agents found these guys to be credible, but there still wasn't anything to charge Reverend Willie with. They couldn't charge him with murder when James Hicks was ruled to have died of natural causes. Well, it seems like the sedative's a big, huge clue of like... The problem is it's just not showing up on a toxicology uh-huh. screen. All so right. there, there's no proof of that. Sure. And back then, there were just so many... There were... And still today, there's just so many drugs that don't show up on a tox screen. So, you know, it's kind of... Right. Hard to do. So no charges were ever filed in the case of the James Hicks death. And there was nothing the agents could do when Willie Maxwell cashed in on the multiple insurance policies he held on his nephew. About a year later, we come to the summer of Sam, summer 1977, when David Berkowitz was terrorizing the people of New York City. But back in Nixburg, there were simpler problems. Ophelia and Willie's adopted daughter, Shirley Ann, was being a big-ass pill. She was 16 and not having it. Shirley was running away from home. She was refusing to do chores, talking back, very typical teenage stuff. Thinking a job could get her under control, Ophelia got Shirley Ann a job at a Hardee's in Alexander City. But since Shirley Ann didn't have a driver's license, Ophelia was spending the summer ferrying Shirley around to work and social engagements. It was just kind of a tense summer. 
Okay. In June 1977, Ophelia drove Shirley Ann to her biological sister's house just for a visit. Um, afterwards, they stopped for ice cream, and then they got home around 7 p.m. Ophelia said as soon as they got back, Shirley Ann wanted to go out again. It was Saturday night, right? But Ophelia put her foot down. No, she was done for the day. She's not doing any more driving. So she told Shirley Ann to wait until... Willie got home from work and just see what he said. Willie was inexplicably working very late that Saturday. Ophelia said Shirley then decided to take the car without permission or a license and hit the open road alone, presumably back to her sister's house for a wild Saturday night out. Ophelia was pissed, but she decided to sit and wait for some inevitable phone call from Shirley's sister or whoever she landed with that night. But no one called and Shirley didn't come home. When Willie came home, the couple went off to look for Shirley, searching the route to Perryville. And when they didn't find her, they went to report her missing to police in Alexander City. But the Alexander City Police already knew that Shirley wasn't missing because she had been found dead on the side of Highway 9, no. just about a mile from the family home. Police escorted Willie and Ophelia to the scene of the accident. Willie was told to stay in the car. Ophelia was the only one allowed to continue on. So Ophelia walked up to the 1974 Ford Torino to see her daughter, it looked like Shirley Ann had gotten a flat tire on the front driver's side. And this 16-year-old who didn't have a driver's license decided to change a tire for the first time. So apparently she had jacked up the car and in the process of changing the tire, the jack slipped and Shirley was crushed to death. Except the front driver's side tire wasn't flat. Mm -hmm. Also, the lug nuts she had supposedly taken off the tire were scattered in the grass under her body, but her hands were completely clean. And further investigation would show that her cause of death was actually strangulation. Oh, the, the whole tire scene had been a total setup. Right. Man. Yeah, absolutely sounds like someone was hired to like make it look like an accident. Yes. It's horrible. So investigators Yeah. Investigators finally had a cause of death ruled as a homicide, a real objectively incriminating crime scene with hard forensic evidence and no ambiguous toxicology screen for Willie Maxwell to hide behind. Mm -hmm. On June 18th, 1977, Ophelia and Willie shuffled through a crowd of 300 people into the Alexander City Funeral Home Chapel where their daughter's funeral was being held. The House of Hutchinson Funeral Home was cramped and hot, everyone waving little paper fans. It was silent. Shirley Ann lay in an open casket. Reverend E.B. Burpo Jr. from Great Bethel Baptist Church led the service very pointedly not Reverend Willie Maxwell. After the service, people formed a line to come to the casket and say their goodbyes. You know, at the time, Ophelia was beside herself. Willie was just sort of blank-faced, no tears or anything. And 
Shirley Ann's biological sister suddenly stood, pointed at the reverend, and shouted, you killed my sister, and now you're going to pay for it. And then a man in a green suit who had been sitting near the Maxwells throughout the funeral pulled out a pistol and shot Willie Maxwell three times in the head at point blank range. Jesus. So everyone just went hauling ass out of there, running, jumping out of windows, totally destroying the chapel. The guy who owned the chapel, <laughs> Fred. That is a quite, a, quite an image. Like, could you imagine being on the outside and then just seeing people jumping out of windows? I mean, it's just so, yeah. And like to walk into a church where you're packed in with somebody that you think is the devil. Yeah. And then someone shoots them. It's like, you know, in a way, when you read this story, it's almost as if people are more afraid of what's going to, ha- what Willie will do after being shot than the shooter, Whoa. you know? Anyway, the guy who owned the, the chapel, Fred Hutchinson, who had ironically and randomly been convicted of murder after killing someone in an in, in insurance scheme just a couple decades earlier. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everyone was doing it. You know, you got to give him a pass here and there. Uh, he told papers, they tore my chapel up. <laughs> after the violent death of the seemingly immortal Reverend Willie Maxwell, his presence lingered. Mm-hmm. Nixburg and the surrounding areas were hit with this brutal, devastating heat wave, so hot and dry that there were dust devils like whipping up and down. How these hellish roads. and devilish is that? Yeah, up and down Highway 9 and Highway 22. Uh, near the end of July that summer, then President Jimmy Carter declared Alabama and Georgia disaster areas mm. because the heat wave was so bad. And in the devilish heat, the county became acquainted with the man who gunned down Willie Maxwell. So the shooter was a man named Robert Burns. He was a tall, handsome Vietnam vet who worked out of Alexander City as a trucker. And he also happened to be, wait for it, the brother of Willie Maxwell's third wife's first husband. So Ophelia Maxwell's ex Mm -hmm, mm brother-in-law. So a relative of Ophelia's kids. Yeah. Yeah. So by all accounts, Robert Burns was a super sweet guy, a family guy. He had his own stepkid and he was fostering a severely disabled seven-year-old girl with his wife, Vera. He was really happily married. And also his defense attorney was none other than Big Tom Radney himself, the best lawyer in town. Yeah. Well, now he's set up too because he de- he defended that guy. Willie, for all those years, built up his thing, and now he can take on new clients. <laughs> Willie's gone. So Willie Maxwell's wake was held a week after his stepdaughter's funeral in the exact same chapel in the Hutchinson funeral home where he had been shot. Okay, well then he hadn't torn they hadn't torn the chapel up that bad. If it was just the next week, they're just back there. In the hundred degree heat thunderstorms Mm. raged outside 
tree branches broke off in the wind. And once again, hundreds of people packed into the chapel, most of whom just showed up to see if really Willie was really dead. Yeah, right. And most still so afraid of him and this weather and the heat and all this kind of stuff and his powers that they refused to go on record with the gathered reporters. So people mm -hmm. were talking, but they were like, don't, I'm not giving you my name. Yeah. That's, a, that's probably always just the right move, you know, unless you just want to make a podcast and put everything you've ever thought of out into the world. You the, know, the funeral was held the next day, just as hot, even more people and even more press and a big, police security detail. At the junction of Highway 22 and Highway 9, police sat watching the crowds drive by. Pretty much all law enforcement involved in the case was super mad about the shooting because they'd been trying to get Willie for years. And the death of Shirley Ann was the first death since Mary Lou to be declared a homicide. So they were just about to finally charge him when Willie was murdered. Yeah. The funeral was chaos. Uh, Maxwell's family didn't want the press in the chapel. The presiding pastor, a guy named Chester, gladly invited the press in, which was like a thinly veiled grab and a little publicity for himself. Uh, the walls were lined with police acting as security. The mourners up front were just completely outnumbered by the curious onlookers packing the chapel. At one point, a chair, like a folding chair, fell over and made this big bang. And all the cops that were surrounding everyone grabbed their oh, guns. <laughs> so it was just like a lot yeah. of drama. Yeah, yeah. A very tense environment. The sermon ended with a little chunk about, you know, do not judge lest ye be judged, right? Uh -huh. Like something along those lines. With the pastor adding at the end that Willie would be back to judge those who judged him. Oh, wow. And the crowd gasped. And then one guy yelled out, I hope to hell not. <laughs> that guy deserves a Pulitzer. Forget <laughs> Harper Lee. The Reverend Willie Maxwell was buried less than a mile from his home and only a few feet from the final resting places of Mary Lou Maxwell, mm. Dorcas Maxwell, John Columbus mm. Maxwell, and James Hicks. And then the world moved on to the trial of Robert Byrne. Right, because Shirley Ann's sister was like, hey, they're coming for you. And then one second later, this guy shoots him in the head. Like there's obvious coordination. Right. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but I'm going to say this from yeah. what I've read, that uh -huh. didn't even come up at the trial. Really? Yeah. So she, she was not charged as a co-conspirator or anything. <laughs> no. no, this is kind they of, they gave a, her a pass. This is kind okay, of a while. Cool, right. Cause everybody thinks that he's like literal, like a voodoo priest. Like it's very, everything uh -huh. is very, uh, squishy. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. And well, anyway, so big Tom's plan was to have Robert Burns plead not guilty by reason of insanity, a last resort. But given that he committed murder in a room packed with 300 people, it was most likely his only option to beat any you know, mm -hmm. significant jail time. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe a witness or two. The district attorney prosecuting the case 
was a man named Tom Young. So double Toms. Okay. Uh, the Toms had actually faced off in over 50 murder trials of over the years. Of course they have. <laughs> and they had a longstanding rivalry. Uh, so big Tom Radley's position was Shirley Ann was Robert Burns' adopted niece. And her death had deeply disturbed him, along with the worry that now his family, nieces and nephews, were all exposed to the murderous preacher through his marriage to Ophelia, right? And at the time of Shirley Ann's funeral, the entire community believed William Maxwell was like the most deep high priest voodoo, you know, guy in the South. Right. So between that and the trauma that Burns carried with him from serving in Vietnam, Big Tom alleged that Robert Burns snapped and killed the preacher at the funeral at this like height of emotion. Okay, so he brought the gun, but he hadn't planned on doing it. Right. Gotcha. The district attorney, Tom Young's goal was simply to prove Robert Burns was sane at the time of the murder. So that's the only thing he felt he obviously needed to prove. Yeah. So the trial began on September 26th, 1977 with Harper Lee sitting unnoticed in the packed gallery. The the day after Christmas, huh? September 26th. Oh, I thought you said December. My bad. (laughs) That's funny. Day after Christmas, huh? Wow, they just opened their presents and went right in there. The air conditioner was broken. Hundreds of people in attendance were really dressed up to the nines, so they were just hot, you know, Uh waving fans. It was kind of miserable. The Toms were going off the entire time. Straight up Southern lawyer style. Uh, Tom Young demanded a mistrial five times during Big Tom's opening statement. (laughs) Uh, Big Tom's co-counsel at one point pumped his fist in the air and shouted, voodoo, it was voodoo. (laughs) This is the kind of stuff they're doing. Uh, On the second day of the trial, Big Tom told Tom Young to shut his mouth and Tom Young told Big Tom to go to hell and the judge had to call a a recess, dismiss the jury and then tell the Toms they were acting like absolute fools and needed to get it together. Uh, And it wasn't just the Toms, right? (laughs) The press and the audience were acting like they were watching Jerry Springer, like they were gasping, laughing, whispering so loud that the judge kept having to bang his gavel at them. Big Tom. But the thing we'll talk about, the biggest revelation at trial Mm -hmm. came with Big Tom's first witness. That was a man named Alfonso Murphy, who would become the third person to come forward with allegations that the reverend tried to tie him up in a murder for hire scheme. Mm -hmm. So remember, there were the two guys that the SBI knew about. Right. But the nephew. Right. But none of that was public at the time. So Alfonso's testimony was really explosive. It was the first time the public had actually heard of this. And not only did he have this long, elaborate story about negotiating payment for murder, Alfonso said that the reverend even was like, hey, man, and if you think your wife is going to snitch, just go ahead and kill her, too. I would just definitely recommend that. Like, that he was just really throwing that around like... uh, (laughs) confetti so at this point we start to realize more than likely it wasn't voodoo after all just a regular murdering man yes Uh, big tom's 
finish, Big Tom's big finish, was of course bringing up the SBI agents to testify about the other two men they found back in 1976 with stories about the Reverend that matched Alfonso's account uh, with Willie offering thousands of dollars for helping uh, in killing off his nephew, James Hicks, in this elaborate drugging, smothering, car-swapping murder plot. So the trial only lasted two days. After five hours of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm. Man, Big Tom really is good. Robert Burns was taken to Bryce Hospital, a state psychiatric hospital in Alabama, to be evaluated. He was held for a few weeks and released free and clear with the hospital doctors in complete disagreement with the verdict. This man was not insane. (laughs) Later, Dr. Francis Gunnels, one of the experts at trial who testified on behalf Uh of the defense that they believe that Robert Burns was insane at the time of the shooting, she said, quote, in a way, killing Willie Maxwell was the sanest thing anybody did all summer. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that. Oh, man, man, man. So, yeah, it sounds like Harper Lee didn't want to write the book because she actually doesn't know what happened when these people were actually murdered. There's still all of this question as to who did it. Did he hire people? Who were the people that he hired? We what? we don't know why she didn't want to write the book. I mean, I uh-huh. think those four things I read uh-huh. in the beginning, like that's the closest thing we know. You know, yeah, like there's details that nobody knows. A big issue was that there's just so much rumor. And Mm -hmm. by the time she got there, it's like everybody knew who Willie Maxwell was, right? But nobody would be honest. And even someone like Ophelia, who Mm -hmm. Ophelia Burns, his third wife, wouldn't would change her story all the time. Right. You know, they couldn't really get anyone to talk about him honestly. And so it just kept coming back to the story was less like what happened and more what the community believed. It was just already a folklore story in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I remember in the movie, I think it's just called Capote about Capote and Harper Lee, like writing in cold blood, the drama and the book in cold blood ultimately hinges on Capote sort of demanding of the murderer what is your actual account of what happened? Yeah. You tell me what you did. And it's like this whole dramatic thing where he's like buddied up with this guy and he's like in jail and he's like getting this whole story and he's writing this whole tapestry thing. And it kind of comes down to like either you tell me what happened or this whole book isn't going to be written. Like I'm sick. I mean, I'm sort of paraphrasing and maybe adding in my own drama, Yeah. but that was like a big thing of like, you tell me the details. What, what did you actually do? Yeah. And I think she, what she got from big Tom Radney was like this crazy trove of all the legal documents, but then also like, you know, cause he fought all of the insurance claims. So Mm -hmm. she got all of that all of those legal documents and transcripts and, you know, his, like his credit card bills, Maxwell's credit card bills and, you know, all of these records. And so she was able to piece together his life from technical things, you know, Mm -hmm. she even paid the court 
transcriber a thousand dollars to transcribe from longhand to type up her longhand mm -hmm. to get like the the transcript of the trial so she she had all this technical stuff but she just couldn't get and anything beyond the technical bones of what happened i think yeah or just really struggled with that so it, it's fat it's really fascinating the book is amazing i'm gonna go out i'm reading to kill a mockingbird baby yeah. <laughs> i'm reading it you know it's time. it's time it's freaking time <laughs> eighth grade man that was a long time ago here i come baby thank you so much for listening to muriel's murders we're back with these one episode a week, one parters. We'll see. Maybe a couple multi parters. We're glad you're here with us. You are not AI. Neither are we. This is a real podcast done by real people. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, and post production. This podcast was recorded in our very non freaking AI whatsoever apartment. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, to help support the podcast, you know what you can do sign up for Patreon, go sign up on Spotify, or just. Write us a review. Hell yeah. Our music is by Mario Castellini. We love him. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. You can find us on Instagram and other social media stuff too if you feel like it. All right, guys. Have a great rest of your week. We will see you next freaking week, That's dudes. right. Hell yeah. And also there's like the, all this bonus Patreon stuff and Spotify stuff that's up right now. So go. So run. Be free. <laughs> okay, bye.